We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. So welcome Rebel Educators to this episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Malvika Bhagwat. She brings a wealth of education experience with particular expertise in assessment design, learning sciences research, and outcome measurement. At OWL Ventures, Malvika leads all portfolio services and partners closely with OWL's 50-plus portfolio companies on their impact and outcome objectives. She also serves as a thought partner to many of OWL's limited partners globally and leads the creation of OWL's annual Education Outcomes Report and OWL Insights. Prior to joining OWL, Malvika was at Emerson Collective, where she led impact and efficacy efforts for a portfolio of edtech companies. Before that, she spent four years as an early employee at Newzella, building out their research and assessment teams. In prior roles, Malvika has worked on assessment design across India, the U.S., and Gulf countries, volunteered as a teacher for different communities, and was on the founding team for MindSpark, an English language learning program for children in India. Malvika is an invited speaker at conferences like ASU GSV, South by Southwest, EDU, ISTE and SII Education Impact Symposium, and currently serves an advisor on EdTech Evidence Exchanges Industry Council, Google's Education Advisory Council, and IES's Council for Scaling Innovations. She holds a master's in education degree from the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Welcome, Malvika. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to chat more. I mean, you've done so much in assessment and design and working across continents and countries. Can you share a little bit about your journey in education, how you got started and how you chose to be where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. 
I actually come from a family of both landscape architects and educators. And so to some extent, I've always seen my both my parents and my grandparents be in schools or in colleges teaching. But if I were to think back to one specific moment that had stayed with me, when I was working at education initiatives, my role was effectively to design large-scale assessment designs for students across India, Singapore, and the Gulf countries. And so our focus area was English. And one of the questions that we had designed was, I won't get the exact details of the question right, but it was the effect of saying, which of these two sentences is grammatically incorrect? One option being, everyone are extremely happy with their decision of the students. And the second one being, the principal and teachers are joining the students in their initiative. When we asked this question, it was almost obvious to me that everybody was going to select the first one, saying that everyone are extremely happy with the decision of their students was incorrect. Um, but to my surprise, when we asked the same question to 15,000 sixth grade students in India, 60% of them basically said the second sentence was incorrect. And I probed a little bit and I was in the classroom and I asked these kids, I was like, why do you think this question is incorrect? And I remember distinctly multiple kids raising up their hands and going, well, because the principals and teachers do not participate in students' activity, they never help us. And that moment kind of stayed with me. It turned out that they weren't looking at the grammar of the sentence at all. They were so colored by their daily experiences and they had become so immune to the teachers not being around and not being a supporting role for them that they weren't looking for what was incorrect or they were only looking actually for what was not true in their reality and not what was grammatically incorrect. And I think that was the experience that kind of has always stayed with me. And it felt so broken, the system of education. That that's what really got me into education in the first place. And since then, I've had the privilege of kind of wearing several different hats across startups. And now the VC community, working closely with education startups globally, which has been an extremely rewarding journey. But that moment has kind of always stayed with me. Yeah, absolutely. Having a group, like thousands of students say that their teachers and principals are not supportive or helpful in their education. Yeah, it was a moment. That's a huge moment. So what did you do with that? In that moment, I mean, we were there to ask the questions and truly understand where the misconceptions were coming from. Mm -hmm. It was my first job out of college. And so it stayed with me. I didn't know at the time that you could pursue a career in education. India didn't have a good sort of master's program in education. But having done some volunteer teaching, having worked at this firm, I think it gave me the confidence that this is kind of where I wanted to build a career. And so that pushed me to come to the U.S. to get the master's in education. And I've since sort of been at the intersection of technology and education, kind of focused on learning outcomes, right? Like sort of the core of what I do all the time, which is helping companies think through, how do you know kids are learning? How do you know that you're giving them the outcomes that they're looking for? How do you know that like in career mobility companies, your end stakeholders is going to drive like higher wages for them. It's going to drive that promotion for them. What is the ROI and how do you drive it? Because at the end of the day, that's why everybody wants to invest so heavily in education. And I think I'm committed to kind of helping folks think through that piece in more detail. So it almost sounds like you moved from assessments and working with how we assess students into assessments and how do we assess ed tech companies on their return on investment, and if they're actually making a difference in the lives of students. I feel like so many teachers are definitely using a lot more technology, especially after the pandemic. Now it became very mainstream and everybody jumped into the technology game. 
But I also feel like there's so many things that are looked at or downloaded or used a handful of times and then not renewed or don't get the usability that teachers or educators were hoping for. So how do you make that connection between schools and outcomes and the way they're using the tech in the classroom with the technology companies and the way they're developing things to be used? Yeah. So Al, the way we think about this is we have a three-pronged approach. So and this is our approach to outcomes. So the three things that we look for when we talk to any ed tech company is scale, access, and outcomes. And I can kind of dive a little bit deeper into each of those. So for scale, we're always focused on how many users are you reaching. And that's important because we don't want to focus on companies and supporting companies that are only built for very niche audiences. Ideally, especially in the U.S. context, when you have scale, by default, you're serving sort of students of color, you're serving the Title I schools, you're serving the free reduced lunch population. And so it's a more all-encompassing solution than something that's built for one audience. And hence, that scale question is really important to us. The second piece being access, right? Like which demographic groups are you serving by race, by gender, by socioeconomic status? How many Title I schools do you have? And this kind of gets to the piece of who can actually use your technology. And how are they going to use it? And then outcomes is the piece around like, okay, but how do we know the product is working? And we understand that not every company is going to be in a position to have like randomized controlled trial studies ready to go from day one. So we will start from everything that our customer testimonials or case studies or interviews with teachers is promise of evidence and then move up. And then the other piece I work closely with companies to help them think about is like product metrics and fidelity of implementation, because your product could look perfect in a lab setting. But when, to your point, when you take it in a school context, there are so many things that you have to take into account. You have to take into account how long the class is, what is this device ratio to students, what is the other materials that they're teaching. And so helping companies think through that fidelity of implementation, how often do you need your students to use the product to be able to drive the outcomes? And is that a realistic expectation? Because if it's not a realistic expectation, if you're a supplemental product that's being expected to be used for like 50 minutes every single day in a classroom, that's not going to happen. And then you're not going to drive the outcomes. And so I think we, we spend a lot of time sort of thinking through each of these pieces with the hope that when the company goes into schools, they're ready and they are actually going to get used. And I think one of the things that's happened because of the pandemic is I think schools are also pushing a lot more for evidence-based products because they, to your point, they have a lot of products on their shelves right now, but they don't use all of them and they want to start investing in only solutions that will work, especially since there has been some sort of learning loss or a gap in learning that has happened because of the pandemic. When you're looking at working with schools and ed tech companies and really creating and building on what we could call the digital revolution, how are we connecting that in schools? Like, what is the ideal way? Because we talk a lot about flipped classrooms and is the direct instruction coming digitally while students are working on facilitating projects and products and classes? Or is the ed tech kind of supplementary and created to supplement what the teacher is already doing in class? Like when you're looking at a product, what are you looking for? And what is the ideal way for education to really be connecting with and using ed tech in the best way? Yes, I think we see a lot of different types of business models and companies that are kind of in all different 
um, sub-sectors within the education space. And I'm happy to focus specifically on the K-12 side, but we see technology being leveraged, obviously, for sort of the curriculum piece, whether that's core or supplemental. In both contexts, I don't think we ever think of technology as a replacement for the teacher. Like, that's never been the goal. I think the goal has always been to be a co-teacher in the classroom or be sort of that one added layer of help to be able to deliver some amount of instruction at scale while the teachers potentially could be focused on working closely one-on-one with the students that need more support or more help instead of having to kind of spend their time figuring out what the right small groups are for instruction or maybe like printing out all the assignments to go and distribute them to every kid, depending on what the reality is of the classroom. But outside of the curriculum place, I mean, we've also seen technology plug in in different ways. So there's a company called Hazel Health in our portfolio which is effectively a telemedicine platform for schools, a virtual telemedicine platform. So what they do is they're able to bring in doctors into the school system. And by extension, what that means is now, because of the presence of the doctor, uh, virtually they're able to prescribe medicines to the students. And so the student gets examined in school and can then be sent back to the classroom, assuming it's not a major illness, which increases attendance hours and they get more time. Which historically in this context, what would have happened is the parent would have gotten called and the kid would have been pulled out of the classroom and they would have had to go home with the parent because there was no doctor to examine the kid. And so that's just an example of a more supplemental but yet important part of how education technology is playing a role in the school system. The other one that I think deeply about right now is social emotional learning. And all the tools that exist within that space, we're talking a lot about mental health and social emotional well-being for students. We have companies like Panorama Education that actually conduct surveys to help students assess what their relationship is with their teachers, what their level of confidence looks like, and all these different aspects to holistically understand a child and see where they need sort of support and intervention. And so I think I'm really excited about all these models where technology is not just in the form of curriculum in a classroom, but it's also playing a supporting role, whether it's through sort of technology like class, which is built on top of Zoom to help teachers run their classrooms more efficiently in a hybrid world or a hazel health that's bringing medicine to schools or any of these other solutions. I think they're all kind of being very additive uh, to the school ecosystem. One of the questions that we hear a lot, especially around social emotional learning and using devices and being on a computer is, can we really develop social emotional intelligence with a screen? Is that something that needs to really be done human to human? Or is it something that really can be built with an app and can be developed and nurtured that way? Have you seen evidence from the companies that you're working with that this really works? Or what are your feelings or thoughts? Yeah, so for the examples that I just gave, for instance, Panorama Education, I mean, I think that the focus of them is, for instance, doing surveys. They handle the survey piece to actually do the assessment, right? Like, what is the social-emotional health of this child? But then the interventions are still human. Mm -hmm. They're not happening through a screen, for instance. But it just sort of gives teachers the data more quickly through a series of surveys to understand and diagnose A, sort of what are some of the challenges that kids are facing and B, sort of which type of kid needs what intervention. And I think in that context, technology is perfect for something like that. But I'm not saying that a screen is ever going to replace the one-to-one human connection. Clearly, having come out of the pandemic, I think we're all realizing even more than before with the importance of that human level of interaction and 
connection is. And I think that's what hopefully the teachers are there for, parents are there for, and all the extended community. But some of these levers can help expedite the process a little bit more or like give them the support just a little bit faster. That makes a lot of sense. I've seen several that have come out that are actually doing like social emotional development instruction, which makes me curious as to how that works, because I kind of believe that you need a human to learn from a human as well. But using it more from kind of an overview and a survey and a gathering of information, like this is the way our school uses testing, right? We don't do any standardized testing. We don't do exams. We don't do quizzes, but we do a map testing a couple of times a year. And it's for that same purpose. It's what do we need to be focused on and what do we need to know about these students so that we can help them and develop the right things going forward? And so that makes a lot of sense. We have one company, I mean, Newzala, which is where I worked initially. They have an SEL curriculum as well or content pieces that sort of align to social emotional learning. And I think even there, the goal is to equip students and teachers with, you think, through the right tools and techniques and tips that they can practice for social emotional learning. So the goal is never that the app is going to potentially teach kids everything that they need to know about social emotional learning, but hopefully reading through techniques like simple breathing techniques or understanding how do you manage stress in a certain moment and having those tooltips handy by accessing those materials at the student's just right reading level, hopefully just gives them that additional tool in that toolbox to go and practice some of this. And I think in all contexts, I've seen this happen in addition to sort of the human interaction and all of the technology just playing sort of a supplemental part when it comes to social emotional learning. How do you see ed tech impacting the future of education? That's a great question. So I think this pandemic has been fairly revealing. We always knew that education technology was kind of here to stay especially with internet access becoming more ubiquitous, um, Chromebooks being present in most schools, uh, the at-home divide not fully being resolved, but at least sort of there being more commitments and investments being made to resolve the at-home internet access and divide as well. We have seen deeper penetration of edtech, um, but I think with the pandemic happening, the world quickly and overnight had to relearn how to teach. And so whether you were a school, whether you were a university, whether you were an employer doing onboarding, everybody had to pivot almost overnight to getting everybody set up online and moving all forms of instruction online. And I think what that has done is it has required all these different institutions to rethink the value of education and education technology in the context of their individual ecosystems. And more people today believe that they need turnkey solutions available to them and they need to invest in the right sort of education tools so that if a pandemic like this or maybe something else were to happen again, God forbid not, but if it were, everyone's prepared, right? Because this was the first time. And I think there was a lot of grace and forgiveness on everybody's part to say that we don't know how to do this. And I think that was okay. But if this happened again, I don't think we have the luxury of time to say we don't know how to do this again. Because at the end of the day, it means the kids are not learning. And I don't think we can pause students learning a second time, irrespective of what's happening around us. And so I do think now more than ever, people's commitment to education technology is doubling down. 
And the other thing I think that's happening is folks are really focused on outcomes. If you think about the traditional person in college today, that's not the same person that used to go to college like maybe 10 years ago. It's not somebody right out of undergrad. It's often a working parent that's trying to get a degree. It's somebody trying to upskill in a part-time job. And for all of these resources, I mean, there's always a sacrifice component that's coming when they're trying to get a degree or upskill themselves. And so they want to make sure that whatever they're investing in is going to give them that return on investment, whether it's the higher wage, whether it's like a postgraduate degree, whether it is a new job, whether it's just academic outcomes, whatever the outcome you're talking about, there is an increased need to see that you're going to get that outcome. And so I think people are more committed to finding solutions and you're not going to get that out of a textbook. A textbook is never going to tell you, here's how your kid is doing. An education technology product can tell you that irrespective of the field. And so I I do think it's just going to help reach so many more students at scale at their own homes in their own times to be able to continue their learning journeys. And with upskilling and reskilling becoming the norm, I think education technology has a huge role to play across the board. Yeah, we talk about it a lot as an elementary school is just how do we create that love of learning so that students do continue to learn throughout their life? Because it's not a six-year, eight-year, 12-year process. It's what do you do after that and how do you continue to learn and how do you continue to learn the things you want to and better yourself and create new realities and look for other careers or other opportunities. I tend to think of ed tech as something that the schools use. And I'm hearing you give a much broader definition of not only in school, but at home and out of school and for other activities and other interests and for higher education and for upskilling and for all of these different things. It just creates a much bigger picture of what education technology is, I guess, than what I tend to think of it as in my own head. So if I had an ed tech company and I were brand new and I wanted to scale this and I wanted to create access to lots of people, what does that look like for a founder's journey to get to the point where they might reach out to someone like you? For us at this point, no conversation is too early. And what I mean by that is it could be a sketch in a bucket. It could be just an idea in their head and we're happy to hop on a call and discuss as long as sort of it's in the education space. So in many ways, it's very easy to get to me, but to get to the sort of details, what you're asking me, what we focus on is, but we basically look at a logic model broken down. And so what I'm looking for is what is the problem that you're solving and what is the solution that you're building? And is the problem backed by actual data, whether that's survey data from the demographic groups that you want to serve, whether that's from like literature, But is this a real problem that actually exists? And is there data to back it? And then what is the solution? And what does someone need to do to engage with the product to be able to see the outcomes, right? And is that a realistic expectation? And it goes back to the fidelity of implementation that we were referencing right now is, is it actually feasible for somebody to use this product in the way that the founder is hoping for this to be done? And so that's, I think, one level of conversation. The other is just looking at things like repeatable sales model. Like, is this something that there is actually a line item in the budget of your end stakeholder to pay for a product like this? Are you seeing initial demand, even if it's for the free version, but are you seeing the demand? Like, are end users that you're designing this for saying, yes, this is something I need, either by committing to like a trial or a pilot or like subscribing a little bit more, whatever that looks like. And then we're always sort of interested in like, the founder story a little bit as well. 
why are they passionate about what they're doing and what got them here in the first place? Just because I think I always describe education or tech as a business of the heart. Most people are in it because they want to make a difference. They want to solve something great and there's a personal connection. And so it's always good to hear that and know whether the mission of the person individually aligns with the mission of the company, because if it does, you know, they're going to give it their all. And so I think those are just some things that we look for more broadly. And at all stages, we're willing to engage with somebody and have that conversation. But these are some of the initial metrics I might focus on in a first conversation. It's one of the things I love about education and the more people that I talk to is that everybody does seem to have a story. Everybody has a reason, whether it's they loved school or they hated school or something happened in their life or with their parents or with their children. Everybody has a reason for wanting to be a part and wanting to make things better. Yeah, for sure. So can you share a story with us that you remember from your elementary or middle school years? Funny you ask me that. I I might answer this question in a very roundabout way, but to be honest, for the most part, I've blocked out most of my elementary and middle school years. And part of that being, I was probably like a misfit kid in my school for a few different reasons. It was a kid that hated school. I sat by myself and ate my lunch quietly. And it came from the fact that unfortunately in our schools, parents often decided who their kids could be friends with based on academic performance. And so they only wanted kids to be friends with kids who had gotten like the same 90th percentile and above, or you couldn't be in the same friend circle. And there was a lot of that going on. Both my parents were working parents. And there were a lot of social events that were happening, which at the time, I didn't fully understand why my parents couldn't make it. And there was just a lot of social politics going on. And so the event that I do remember is me actively at the end of like 10th grade, just locking myself up in my room and refusing to go back to school and just being like, nope, I'm done. Like, I'm not going back to the school. Do what you will. I am not happy. And I was fortunate that my parents heard that and decided to act on it and then moved me to a different school for my 11th and 12th grade or high school, which was an IB curriculum in a small classroom. And I think that's the first time in many, many years that I truly understood what the value of education could do and that it could truly help you find your voice and figure out who you are, which were not things that I'd ever seen in my prior school. And so while I blocked out most of my elementary and middle school, I think the story that like stayed, the memory that I have is that one moment when I decided I'm not going back and then changing schools, which I think going through the two years of the IB program also and the school that I did and around the community that I had also fundamentally just changed my outlook towards education and also sort of increased my commitment to being in the field because it was a testament to the fact that with the right education and the right support system around you, it can fundamentally change your outlook to life and help you explore pathways that you just didn't know were possible. And so I know it's not the story you were looking for, but that is that is the honest story of how I remember my elementary and middle school years. No, and it's a great reminder for parents just how influential school can be. You know, some years we have great teachers, some years our teachers are not as great, but all of those teachers can say things that greatly influence what, you know, the outcome of a student's life but also that whole educational experience and how important it is for students to be invested in their education and to understand why they're doing all the things that they're doing. And it's not necessarily just to get the next A or get to the next goal, but what does it matter in life and in the world? 
Do you wish you had told your parents sooner and locked yourself in your room years before? <laughs> I don't think I had the sense of maturity to do it. I definitely had applied for a few boarding schools, like starting eighth grade. I would just like send out emails being like, I- I'm ready to leave now. And my dad would be like, we're not ready to re- send you out of home yet. So you're staying put. I think in hindsight, it worked out fine. I spent the years I did, but I think I made the move at the right time. I don't think I would have been able to make the move sooner. I don't think I have the understanding in the same way that I did when I did. But I'm glad I did when I did as well. How can people get in touch with you, Malvika? Email is good. LinkedIn is good. My email is malvika at alvc.com. Just tell me sort of how I can help. And I'm happy to sort of figure out a way to get in touch and respond and start a conversation. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, This was really fun. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. I'd invite you to check out rebeleducator.com, where you can see all of our upcoming workshops, webinars, and professional development opportunities. Upacademysf.com, where you can see our current progressive elementary school in action. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? Reliably meet Tier 1 standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com slash B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.